This is Classic Business with Michael Avery on Classic 1027 in Gauteng and Fine Music Radio in Cape Town. Time for your view from the C-suite here on Classic Business in partnership with Eltron, bringing you closer to the business leaders around the boardroom table. It's where the interview rules are made up and uh, market caps don't matter. My next guest began her career as an architect, actually working four years in South Africa and Hong Kong in various projects. After obtaining an MBA from Witt Business School, she joined First National Bank's commercial division way back in 2003 and then spent seven years working first in a private equity team funding black youth empowered business and then as a leveraged finance uh, dealmaker. Now she spends her time making deals of an altogether different kind as executive director of the Manufacturing Circle, which is an industry group that lobbies for the manufacturing sector. Philippa Rodzith, great pleasure to have you in studio. It's a pleasure to be here. And I was going to say it's been a long time, but I saw you this morning at a COVID advisory event. So uh, you really do get around with your manufacturing circle hat on speaking for the industry. But I want to dial it back. I want to dial it right back, actually. Where did it all begin for you? Was the um, architecture dream a childhood dream of yours? Yes. Architecture really combines science and art, and that's always enthused me. And the idea of studying something quite specific and focused, and buildings deal with people, with history, with cities. So it made a lot of sense to study architecture. The reality often when you study something and the practice can be quite different. Uh, Why did you veer away from architecture? Well, first of all, yes, the practice and theory is very different, which didn't bother me. One spends a lot of time studying design during varsity, but in practice, you know, on the ground, one's either a project architect or um, it takes a lot of time to those sketches when you hear about Howard Rourke and the fountainhead and those sort of visions are few and far between. And there's a lot more about um, sort of having to be bulldoggish about getting your details right on site and getting a project uh, built, which can take quite a long time. I enjoyed that. I, however, felt that one architect in the family was enough. My husband happens to be an architect. Uh-huh. We, we met in university. And I also wanted to just see if the grass was green on the other side. I just wanted to explore a little bit more about the world and see how business worked and finance and deals. And that, that interested me. And you then decided to do the MBA at the same time as working at FMB? How did that go? No, no. I took a plunge and just decided I was going to take a new path. So I left as an architect and, well, resigned from the architecture profession, although it's still very close to my heart. And, um, yeah, and then and then decided to study an MBA full time with a view to doing something different afterwards. But I wasn't quite sure. What? Mm-hmm. So that is always very interesting because it certainly opens doors. But quite often, you know, when looking to transition into something, the general phrase was, "Well, um, gosh, I, you're an architect. You're an architect. I always wanted to be an architect. Tell me now. Now tell me about architecture." <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, I'd love talking about it, but you know, the transition to something different um, it, it, it did take a while. But um, it happened through through networks. And and, um, Many of those uh, networks that you built up doing the MBA, it's one thing you always hear about an MBA and uh, mm. while technology is disrupting education, 
and we can do distance learning and online learning. The one thing an MBA gives you is that networking. It does. And, you know, it's a long time ago that we studied the MBA, but we still get together and we still share thoughts. And, um, you know, there was a there was a huge amount of camaraderie that was built up and that, you know, that that one can't put a price on so so definitely um and then yeah i started in in the bank in an innovative division and then slowly uh, learned the ways of the banking system and, and an innovative yeah. division indeed i mean private equity mm-hmm. funding black youth empowered business and then obviously leveraged finance very similar to what they do with private equity as a, as a deal maker there for seven years mm. uh, must have been a very interesting foundational period for you in that uh, foray into the business world from architecture what did that time teach you it taught me fundamentally about business and people and cash <laughs> because that's really what it's all about. One can do larger deals, smaller deals, structured deals, but in the end, who are the people behind the deal? Where is the revenue offtake going to come from to service whatever it is that's funding the deal? Yeah. You know, and that's that's happens in many different iterations. So there's a lot of technicalities to learn about, but that's, you know, that's par for the course. But what I really loved was, you know, especially in the leverage finance uh, side, often it was funding buy-ins and buy-outs of owner-managed businesses or sometimes larger listed businesses, often in the manufacturing space. So doing those kind of deals, it required looking forward as opposed to just looking at a balance sheet and what a company had done. Um, Acknowledge that we weren't ever funding hockey sticks (laughs) (laughs) as far as uh, uh, cash, um, you know, revenue projections um, were concerned but um, very interesting to understand the dynamics of um, let's say manufacturing businesses and seasonal cash flows um, you know thin profit margins and a lot of innovation and um, long-standing businesses as well. But coming back to your point about people being the fundamental or the foundation of what you're doing here if you go into a family-owned family-managed business perhaps a, a family business has been operating in the sector for 40 or 50 years years um, they might want to be exiting at a particular stage or they might want to remain invested you have to understand uh, the reasons behind going um, into partnership with uh, with family-owned businesses it's very different to a, a, a managed or professional managed transaction and I think here yeah, of what's going on with telecom and Celsi and MTN that's a, a far more corporatized world to the owner-managed space. Mm. Uh, do you think that prepared you in a, to a large degree for uh, what you currently do for the manufacturing circle, which is about lobbying, it's about relationships, it's about mm. uh, building rapport and, and deal-making of a different kind? Mm. No, absolutely. I tend to like to get my hands dirty. I like to understand the nitty-gritty of what's going on and the dynamics of um, a business. Um, and... Understanding motivations and, you know, what, what it is that, that we need to do to achieve something or problem solve is definitely put me in good stead in the manufacturing circle. And in fact, when I look at it, nothing that I've done has been wasted. Um, the architecture side of things, a lot of manufacturing, you know, there's technicalities. It's about making things. It's about processes. I will never say to the engineers that I know as much as they do. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I studied an MBA with the majority of engineers, so I know what they think about architects. But I do claim to know a little bit about, you know, understand the, the, the technicalities and, and what goes into making something, which is important because it's about how it all fits together, what are the supply chains, what are the inputs, where are the connections, joining the dots between different companies, maybe seeing where there might be opportunities to link up different manufacturers and, um, you know, within a value chain. Um, so on the architecture side, the let's say the creativity and the technicality, and then certainly on the, you know, on the banking side, because a lot of this is about maybe a business is growing or maybe a business might be having a certain challenge or access to finance. I was at the African Investment Forum this week, for example, yep. and that's at, at a larger scale. You know, I could sit, for example, in a, in a panel session where there were institutional investors and sovereign wealth funds talking about funding into multilateral banks and development funding institutions and then how that trickles down and it didn't scare me because the principles are all the same and there's always a lot of different acronyms but once you break it down it's you know once you sort of understand it then you can apply it in different ways so it's definitely helped. You joined in 2015 so you've been uh, executive director now for four years uh, in the manufacturing circle. It's a tough role And it's the role, in essence, of a lobbyist for the sector, to lobby government for the right policy, to be the voice of the various members of the manufacturing circle. And I just want to get your sense, um, Philippa, of some of the ethical questions that you grapple with, because I know business and government haven't tended to see eye to eye in South Africa. There is a deep distrust across the divide. There has been for a very long time. We seem to be coming closer together thanks largely to things like the public-private growth initiative. The new administration under the president is far more receptive to business. Uh, It certainly has uh, made out that it is so. How do you approach this hat of lobbying? And it can be an ethical minefield. We see it happen all over the world. How do you approach it? Well, I would say first and foremost, um, with pragmatism and with integrity. And interesting that you say lobbying because not only are we looking at lobbying with the government, I also have to lobby within industry as well. Yeah. Um, manufacturing circle, it's it's um, plays a very important role as, as the voice for, for the manufacturing sector. But um, industry as well ha- is in some ways quite fragmented. Yeah. So it's about what is it that um, we jointly feel is important to um, grow manufacturing and in so doing grow the economy in the country. So if one takes it at that from that position, it's it's not actually that that difficult because um, you know those are objectives that um, would well are are, are close to industry and government. Um, And really the role is about increasing um, an understanding between the two parties. And there are some ideological areas and issues where we'll just agree to disagree. And given that the economy is in, um, you know, a challenging position and and more so manufacturing, having said that, I'm the eternal optimist and we will turn it around. Yeah, I know. We're always looking for the green (laughs) Um, shoots here. so, so, So we've got to be mindful with where we spend our energy and this needs to be in practical, implementable solutions. And we've put a lot of time in our Map to a Million document, which we put out 
two years ago and still holds true as to where are the blockages and not to growing manufacturing and not pointing any fingers saying, you know, what is it that industry needs to do? What is it that government needs to do? What is it that the two need to do better together? And then really identify these work packages and, and get on with them. And um, this this move towards master plans for various subsectors, I feel, is a positive space because it's taking an it's an understanding that um, you know it's, it's it's quite a complex ecosystem and manufacturing. Are those master plans? And I, I listened to Godfrey Mashamba um, mention them at the COVID event this morning. Are those master plans pass, part of the public private growth initiative? They they are connected, yes. Um, and as far as uh, public-private growth initiative is involved in that process, and we need basically industry and government as role players. So they they're playing an important role in that in yeah. that process. Um, and and it's it's really because it was originated out of the fact that automotive has worked quite well in that regard proactive, long-term planning, yep. master plan kind of approach, and then what is it that we can do? How can how can we replicate that in other subsectors of the economy? So Yeah, use what's yeah. working, and it really has worked uh, very effectively. It also has come with a certain degree of um, incentivization from government, and that's what we're talking about this morning at uh, the COVID advisory event. Interesting to listen to Godfrey Mishamba of the Department of Science and Technology talking about uh, working on making it easier to apply for things like R&D incentives and the target now, uh, a turnaround time of 90 days. Uh, it still seems like a very long time, but at least government, and you read through uh, National Treasury's paper, the penny really seems to be dropping, that we need to do a lot more on that high return on uh, equity R&D incentive versus other incentives in the economy. What's your take on that? Well, the incentive space is is important in motivating and driving manufacturing because um, otherwise we're not we are not operating in a level playing field. So, what is it that is going to convince or incentivize a manufacturer to? keep production facilities here as opposed to picking up the phone and ordering uh, a container of finished goods to be imported from elsewhere. So um, the incentive landscape is a very important component of um, the manufacturing environment. Um, it's, it's, it's a balancing act as to how and where those funds are allocated. And that's something, there's, there's no um, hard and fast rule. Mm. Um, we know that on the R&D space, um, we're not spending as much as we should. And also incentives play a role in counter-cyclical activity. So if, for example, business is in a very difficult position and unable to fund um, uh, um, disciplines that are going to be beneficial in a longer term, you know, that research and development word or maybe investment in more efficient production, more efficient um, machinery, for example. That's where government can step in um, to help that, you know, balance that counter uh, cyclicality. So that's that's very important. Um, as to the question of, well, where should the, the majority be assigned, the lion's share does go to automotive, um, and that's very clear in the stats. So where is it and how is it that we can drive other parts of the sector because automotive is very important but we also can't put all our eggs in one basket yeah um so that's really um 
discussion that has to take place in a nuanced way. Um, uh, research has been done by, um, you know, the various departments as to where the expenditure takes place, but then also input from industry as to what is it that we need, what would kickstart things, what are we investing in, where could we get more of a hand, and building this this rapport because um, it's also about, you know, from from policymakers' point of view, there's often this. Um, uh, well, well, there's this 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 requirement for reciprocity. If if as governments, I'm going to provide an incentive, um, what is it that um, you know we are going to see as a result? Is it jobs a- apart from profits and paying more tax and <laughs> uh, and creating jobs and all of those things that tend yes, to flow from absolutely. growth? Absolutely. So so that's my role as the lobbyist <laughs> and the diplomat to try and see things from from different uh, perspectives. Now, Philippa, yeah. you say that obviously in industry, business leaders don't see eye to eye. You're positive about where we um, are heading and the, and the general directionality of the country. I know a lot of people are frustrated with the slow pace. Sometimes that just is the politics. What is the one message you'd want to get out to other business leaders at this time uh, that we find ourselves in South Africa? We don't have any more time to keep our cards close to our chest. Sometimes we're in a position where we need to look at what is important for the country as a whole and how can we balance in this ecosystem. And there needs to be space for everybody. So manufacturing needs to exist. And this is where I'm talking from my <laughs> manufacturing hats, because if we don't have that as the core of the economy, we're not going to be able to service things. We're not going to be able to transport things. We're not going to have, um, you know, the pull for baseload of services and utilities. So so there's a place for everything. We've got very um, uh, sophisticated and important financial services sector. Um, retail is also important, but we need to see how all those link so that, um, you know, in the end, it's all about balance and trade-offs, let's say in the deal-making sense entirely. Um, you know, and in some cases, it is cheaper to import um, tons of tomatoes to put on a shelf, um, you know, to get to the consumer. But we need to also be mindful of what's happening in the medium to long term. So really, it's about, I'd say, having a, let's say, an more open mind using our using the skills and the innovation that we have um, in a collaborative way to really grow this economy and this country because that's essentially what we all would like. Philippa Rods at the Executive Director of the Manufacturing Circle. Thanks so much for sharing your view from the C-Suite, which is brought to you by Ultron Technology Partners in your digital transformation journey. For more information, visit them at ultron.com. Ultron, there when it matters.